This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park, Seattle. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to the October 8th, 2023 edition of Cascade of History. We're live from historic Magnuson Park along the shores of Lake Washington in Seattle. It's the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station. We're in the building where the master at arms used to have his quarters, and it's now headquarters of one of the biggest little radio stations in all the Pacific Northwest. Um, Don't know if you felt the earthquake at 7.21 p.m. tonight. Um, I missed it at my house. I had just driven away to head to the station. Got a call from my wife, though. The house shook. The dogs barked. I heard from my brother in Edmonds, my sister on Camino Island. Looks like it was uh, centered someplace over west of Whidbey Island and 4.4 magnitude and about 33 miles deep. So that's one of those good earthquakes, <laughs> those, those shallow ones that last a long time that are scary. But I'm sorry I missed it. I hate missing an earthquake like that. Anyway, um, we'll uh, if we get any updates, I don't think there's any damage or in reports of injuries or anything like that. But that's certainly uh, history in the making on a Sunday night here in late October 2023. Uh, this is Cascade of History. We're the only regional live radio history show anywhere in the Pacific Northwest. We're on every Sunday night from 8 to 9 p.m. We're also a podcast. You can listen to us live in Seattle on good old FM radio, 101.1 FM. That's the uh, that's our, our uh, frequency here for Space 101.1. We also stream at space101fm.org. You can get that anywhere, of course. Um, in some parts of the city where the antenna doesn't reach, that's certainly the best way to hear us as well. Uh, this is a great radio station. It's all listener-supported. Um, you can contribute at our website, space101fm.org, if you're going there to stream. Um, we depend on the money for electricity and equipment and everything like that. I think all the programming staff are volunteers, um, so we're, we donate our time, but we'd like to have the, the contribution stuff help keep us on the air. Um, Coming up after this show at 9 o'clock, it's Jay's Radio Hour. I was just trading emails. Those guys, they're going to have jazz from 1918, ragtime banjos, a phonograph scam, the roots of the Beatles, and a song called It's Just a Burning Memory Like You've Never Heard Before. And that all starts at 9 p.m. right here on Space 101 FM, right after Cascade of History. Now, on tonight's episode of this show, uh, we're going to have installment three in our chief Seattle biographical radio piece from 1951. That was a series that was put together by Gloria Chandler called Their Name Was Courage. It's pretty dated, not politically correct anymore, but it does, inf- does feature uh, indigenous singing recorded by Erna Gunther, the famous anthropologist of a Swinomish tribal member. This was a project of the Junior League for the city centennial back in 1951. So we'll dip into that a little bit. I don't know. Here's a, here's a little tease. This is the end of last week's installment, which I think was actually two weeks ago. Here we go. And he led them in war when the northern enemies attacked. But he always carried peace in his heart. And always the dream was with him. I just love that style of uh, radio narration from 1951. They're just, it's so intense. I, to try and do that for an hour it would be very exhausting. But okay, um, the rest of the episode tonight is going to be a deep dive on the infamous anti-nomination historic preservation landmark designation process in Seattle. I know that sounds like something on C-SPAN, and it kind of is, 
but it's this thing that's been going on for years. It's, it's about the way that certain uh, potential landmark buildings have to go through this process where when the owner of the building doesn't want it to become a landmark, they pay money to consultants to write landmark nominations and they pay attorneys to represent them in these process to discourage the building from being designated a landmark. Uh, it happens, I don't know how often it happens, and it's very esoteric, and most of the people you talk to about this uh, who work in the industry don't want to go on the record about it because it's sort of, um, <laughs> I don't know. There's all these different relationships and things, and I, I'm terrible at managing those kinds of things, like those sort of subtle relationships like that. And I just want to tell the story about why certain landmarks get nominated and some don't, why get, some get designated and some don't. Um, so I sat through this big, long, oh, I don't know, three and a half hour meeting. Was it that long? On Wednesday afternoon. And I was listening from home. It was a remote thing. And I ran, rolled tape on the whole thing. And I pulled out some highlights. And we're going to talk about and hear what people said at this meeting. I mean, spoiler alert, they were considering landmarking, designating the entire stadium or the stadium and the memorial wall or just the memorial wall. They only designated the memorial wall which was built in 1951. The stadium was built in 1947. Um, I, if, this is, if this topic's too much, we've, we've done a couple of special episodes about Memorial Stadium. We did a live broadcast from there back on VJ Day in August. It's just, uh, it's a real strange, it's emblematic of a lot of things around historic preservation, especially in the city of Seattle. Not so much in other parts of the country is what I'm learning from doing a little bit of research. But um, we'll go we'll go deep on that subject. We'll go uh, we'll go deep on the whole topic. And I mean, this will be our little uh, we'll have a little bit of a theme music. We'll play for it. This is this is our, our theme music for considering historic preservation designation in Seattle. Bill, and as you ready, because we're going to tear you down. <laughs> we could have we could have played that at the start of the uh, landmark preservation uh, board meeting on Wednesday last week. Anyway. Um, OK, so. First of all, let's do. I'll do a little brief description of what this whole anti-nomination phenomenon is. Um, and bear with me here. I guarantee it's a good story. There's some really some some interesting audio we're going to hear from different people who participated in that meeting the other day. Um, basic premise is: if a project is proposed in Seattle and it triggers something called SEPA, the State Environmental Policy Act, then the um, Seattle Department of Construction and Inspections. Um, refers whoever is applying for, the, let's say it's a demolition permit to tear down an old building, they refer them to the landmark staff, which is part of the Department of Neighborhoods. There's a whole landmark preservation board, which are all volunteers, and there's a handful of staff that kind of manage the whole process and run the meetings and everything. And full disclosure, my dad actually worked for uh, the, one of the predecessor agencies for the Department of Construction and Inspections. Um, it was called the Building Department when he worked there from 1962 to 1989. And the best part of that was at the picnic every summer, he and his colleagues wore T-shirts that said on the front, I work for the SOB. And on the back it said, you know, SOB is superintendent of buildings. Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, um, that's how long ago. And, it was, and, you know, he retired from that in 1989 and passed away, you know, seven, eight years after that. So um, it's sort of this, this premise is what the city of Seattle is trying to do, I think, is trying to flag any building that potentially is a landmark and force the owner to put it through a landmark process so it can be judged by the Landmark Preservation Board as to whether it, um, if and whether it meets these different criteria that make something eligible to be considered and designated as a city landmark. Now, the weird thing is if you're the owner of a building and you don't want your building to be designated a landmark because you want to tear it down, 
you hire consultants to write what is typically called now an anti-nomination. So it go, it, it's fills, you fill out, you answer all the questions. You, you, know, you describe like, is this building significant in terms of its cultural history or whatever? You go through all the, the, the processes, but you don't necessarily fill it out as thoroughly or as fully or as maybe as accurately as you would if you were trying to convince the Landmark Preservation Board to, yes, please designate this building. So it's, I know this sounds like inside baseball, and trust me, I, I get that. I get that. Um, but the way this process plays out, especially around public buildings, because oftentimes if it's a public building owner, it's public money being used to pay a consultant to write an anti-nomination you know, a, a bogus nomination <laughs> that says, you know, this building is only, it's, it's significant, but not significant enough to be a landmark. And it's public money paying attorneys to represent the public agency in these different processes and everything. And it just sort of seems silly to me because if a public building is designated, is sort of in the way of progress, if, if the civic leaders have determined that, why go through all the motions if the end result is this sort of anti-nomination process? I hope that makes sense. Um, let's, uh, let's get into some of the audio. Let me set the stage here for you, first of all. Okay, Memorial Stadium, built in 1947. It's on the Seattle Center campus. Um, there's most historic preservation professionals you talk to outside the city of Seattle who don't necessarily have some direct connection to the politics here. It's clearly, it's been deemed eligible for the National Register um, by, by the state architectural historian. It's clearly been associated with all sorts of significant events, like the World uh, the World's Fair, where it was hosted the opening and closing ceremonies. And if you're a regular listener to this show, you we went through a lot of this on that special we did back in August. Where we talked about the World's Fair history. We talked about all the concert history, all the other events that were held there, whether it was concerts or um, an impromptu memorial for Dr. King when he was assassinated in 1968. It sort of spilled over from the nearby arena and they moved it to the uh, Memorial Stadium instead. It's just this, it's been this gathering place for every possible socioeconomic group in Seattle from the 1940s, 1947, when it was dedicated as a memorial to nearly 800 Seattle Public Schools alums who gave their life in World War II. And called Memorial Stadium, it's, it's been this gathering spot. Four years after it was built in 1947, in, in 1951, they added this wall of all the names of those nearly 800 students. And it's, that wall has been just totally neglected by the school district for decades. It, the, the fountains are derelict. The hedges have been grown to, you know, allowed to grow over the, the names on the wall. And you can park your car right up against the wall. So hopefully that's all stuff you've heard from me before, either on this show or when I do stories about Memorial Stadium on Cairo News Radio. Anyway, so back in August, or back in June, uh, this nomination was submitted by the Seattle Public Schools um, to get landmarks, to go through this landmark designation process. And remember, the secret surprise is the school district doesn't want it to be a landmark. So the nomination is missing all this important information. It doesn't mention any concerts. It doesn't mention the fact the first TV broadcast in Seattle history happened from Memorial Stadium. Mentions just a tiny bit of the sports events. I think it devotes maybe two sentences to the World's Fair. Okay, that's fine. So then the, the Landmarks Preservation Board meets in August to decide whether or not to, to consider the stadium or the wall or whatever for the, for the landmark designation process. They decide to consider everything. All right, and so the October 4th meeting was when they did that, and so there was a, uh, it opened with public comment. So the first piece of audio I want to play is, it's actually a friend of mine, Sean Murphy. Sean's a really nice guy, a military historian, uh, an old army guy, and a pilot, and just a just a good guy all around. Um, I 
worked on lots of different research history projects with him. Now, we, we first met because of the Memorial Wall when I put a call out on the other radio station for anyone who had a relative listed there. And so this past Wednesday, Sean Murphy spoke to the board members about his Uncle Pat, whose name is right there on the wall. And Sean got at that fact um, that the stadium, not the wall, is what they call a living memorial. Now, the board will discuss this concept of a living memorial a bit later on in the meeting, and it's very convoluted. It's, it gets so needlessly convoluted in the meeting, uh, in my opinion, but I'll, I'll let you decide, and we'll talk about that a bit, a bit later on. But before we do that, this is Sean Murphy in the public comment portion of the Seattle Landmarks Preservation Board meeting this past Wednesday at City Hall and uh, online and by phone. Um, first of all, when you look up on the wall, you'll see a Roosevelt student by the name of Pat Murphy. And as one of my late father's nine younger siblings, he died two months shy of his 20th birthday while serving in the United States Navy. This young man and all the others on there deserve protection. But I'd like to say further, the stadium was built as a living memorial. People often today don't know what that meant in the World War II and subsequently thereafter, instead of putting up statues around the country were living memorials built. That meant an ongoing memorial that people would know that it meant something and that it should continue to mean something. The fact that the stadium is in disrepair, I have yet to see anything to prove that it can't be brought up to standards. Now, if it turns out that it truly cannot, I would advocate that it be restored in another way possible, where it at least, at least part of it is retained. I don't know, but I know it's a living memorial that should not go away entirely. And I think the school district has let everyone down by allowing it to get into the situation it is in, when in fact, it was owned by the school district, and they owed it to all of the veterans of their students who died and who had a stadium built as a living memorial. I didn't say a dead memorial. I said a living memorial. And I would hope that the Seattle School District, the historical board, would take into consideration exactly what that was built for, what it was named for, and what the meaning of it was. Thank you very much. Now, many, many people made remarks, um, and most of them were not in favor of designating Memorial Stadium a landmark. And there was a group of three high school friends from Ballard, actual current students, I think, who are all in the marching band together. They, they seem to know each other, and they talked about the stadium uh, being uh, kind of in disrepair. There were a few different speakers from, I think it was two speakers from Ballard Eagleson, VFW Post 3063. They don't want to save the stadium. They want to save the wall that came four years later. And there were a lot of people in leadership positions. Somebody who didn't want the stadium to be designated put in some serious uh, recruiting efforts to get some big, big, uh, big time speakers to join that speakers list. Here's just a partial list of uh, these are the names, all the names I could catch as they were reading off who there was. We had Marshall Foster, who runs Seattle Center, uh, Mari Harita, who runs One Roof Partnership, that's the main private development partner for the new stadium, um, Tom Albro, the CEO of the Seattle Monorail. An attorney named Christine Wilson from Perkins Coie, who was representing One Roof Partnership. Um, Catherine Chang, the VP of Culture and DEI for the Mariners, who was there as a board member for the Seattle Center Foundation. Pat McCarthy, Executive Director of Athletics for Seattle Public Schools. 
Todd Lieberman, the former Seattle Center Foundation board member and former chair of the Seattle Center Advisory Commission. Matt Hanna, an attorney at Karen Cross and Hanselman in Seattle, who was there in his capacity as president of the Seattle Center Foundation. Foundation. Christine Shepelman, the director of the Seattle Opera. Uh, and, and Jack McCullough, McCullough Hill Leary. That's the law firm representing Seattle Public Schools in this whole Memorial Stadium landmark process. Um, but as we'll hear in a moment, he said he was actually speaking on behalf of a different organization. Um, by my estimation, there was 51 minutes of public comment. That board typically just allows 20 minutes max, and I don't think they typically get a lot of comments. So definitely some serious turnout there. So um, really good work uh, getting the word, out, getting a bunch of people to come and say no. We don't want to. We don't think the stadium's significant. Um, now, as I mentioned, there I think I mentioned there's some confusion right before Jack McCullough spoke, since one of his colleagues, as part of the formal presentation. Um, uh, that they did this, you know, this whole meeting had like had public comment, and then the, then different the consultant spoke and the attorney spoke. So Jack McCullough works for this firm, McCullough Hill Leary, and one of his colleagues was going to speak later. And that I think why there's a little bit of confusion um, right when uh, Jack McCullough makes his public remarks. It's all of our callers. Um, Aaron, this is Jack McCullough. McCullough. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't know if you we're giving public comment because your colleague is speaking as part of the presenters. So I'm, I'm actually speaking for another organization. Okay, go ahead. Tonight. Two minutes. If that's good. Yep. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Jack McCullough. I'm here tonight on behalf of the downtown Seattle association. The DSA has been involved for more than 30 years in the planning efforts to uh, restore and, and uh, the Seattle center campus as a whole and Memorial stadium in specific. And, we're here tonight to ask you to deny designation for any part of the stadium or the site, but certainly to designate the memorial wall. I just wanted to talk to you about your job tonight under the Landmark Preservation Ordinance. As you know, as board members, you are governed by the ordinance and the criteria and the standards in the ordinance. And usually we talk about the six criteria. We talk about the age of the improvement. We talk about whether it has integrity. But the landmark process exists with also within the city's planning process. If you look at Seattle Code 2512020, which is the purpose under which you as a board operate, your actions must be, and I'm quoting, consistent with the established long-term goals and policies of the city. So what are those goals? There was a decade of planning that led to the 2008 Century 21 Master Plan. The EIS for that plan found that the plan was consistent with the city's comprehensive plan. In August of 2008, the city council unanimously adopted the master plan, which calls for the redevelopment of Memorial Stadium. It's taken us 15 years to get to this point. The voters of Seattle resoundingly by over two, three quarters rather approved the financing of the new stadium. And just last week, the city council unanimously adopted a resolution endorsing this plan. Now, I know that this board over the years has felt as though it needs to stay removed, maybe insulated from such civic affairs, what you might call politics. But this is not politics. This is the city plan. This is, to quote from your ordinance, the established long-term goal and policy of the city to redo Memorial Stadium. So your obligation tonight goes beyond the six criteria, beyond age, beyond integrity. I don't think you can reach this finding because the designation of Memorial Stadium will obstruct and impair the implementation of the Century 21 Master Plan. We encourage you to deny the designation. So what he's saying there um, by most interpretations is that the city's plan, especially this master plan called Century 21, which dates to 2008, overrides all of the historic preservation criteria. So 
if you're built, and that's a pretty radical interpretation based on some people I've shared this with, um, because if you have this historic preservation ordinance that is supposed to deal with the criteria of the buildings and in terms of their significance around these different categories, um, these different criteria, but if they're completely overridden, if a city plan says that the building has to come down regardless because that's part of the plan, it kind of seems like that wouldn't be the spirit. Um, and one question I had was, if the landmark staff at that point, because there's at least two staffers, I think, who are there in that, two of the senior staff of the team are there, should they have either responded after that? I get it's a public remark, but Mr. McCullough is there with his, or he's at the meeting virtually anyway, with a colleague who's actually part of the same firm representing the school district in this official matter. But should the staff have either said, if they ref should they have refuted that or should have at least kind of interpreted it to clarify what he said? Um, he's so emphatic about the interpretation of the very specific ordinance, calling it out by number and everything. And we'll see later in some audio, I'll, I'll play a bit later on the show, that those remarks did have an impact on at least one of the Landmarks Preservation Board members who repeats them. Um, anyway, now what that ordinance, that Mr. McCullough quote says, is a bit more than just the line he cited. It's two paragraphs. I want to read it to you here. Um, this is 25.12.020, uh, Purpose and Declaration of Policy. The city's legislative authority finds that the protection, enhancement, perpetuation, and use of sites, improvements, and objects of historical, cultural, architectural, engineering, or geographic significance located within the city are required in the interest of prosperity, civic pride, and general welfare of the people. And further finds that the economic, cultural, and aesthetic standing of the city cannot be maintained or enhanced by disregarding the heritage of the city and by allowing the unnecessary destruction or defacement of such cultural assets. So here's the sort of enabling part of it that... that that, uh, that includes the line that Mr. McCullough quoted. Um, this is paragraph B. The purposes of this chapter are, one, to designate, preserve, protect, enhance, and perpetuate those sites, improvements, and objects which reflect significant elements of the city's cultural, aesthetic, social, economic, political, architectural, engineering, historic, or other heritage consistent with the established long-term goals and policies of the city. So I read that as that consistent with the established long-term goals as, that, as the, the things that are laid out in the first paragraph about enhancement and perpetuation and uh, unnecessary destruction. And then, uh, so anyway, and then it's uh, section two of paragraph B, to foster civic pride in the beauty and accomplishments of the past, such as winning World War II. I, just, I put that in myself. Three, to stabilize or improve the aesthetic and economic vitality and values of such sites, improvements, and objects. Four, to protect and enhance the city's attraction to tourists and visitors. Five, to promote the use of outstanding sites, improvements, and objects for the education, stimulation, and welfare of the people of the city. And six, to promote and encourage continued private ownership and use of such sites, improvements, and objects now so owned and used to the extent that the objectives listed above can be attained under such a policy. So the fairly standard interpretation of that ordinance uh, up till now has been, has, I don't think anyone's ever said that a master plan trumps the uh, preservation criteria and that whole goal of the city of preserving things. So anyway, I just wonder if the staff should have said something, although it's public comment, so anyone can make a public comment and can't, don't, aren't necessarily going to be challenged by the staff. So I, I, I guess it's a matter of debate. Um, and one other thing, uh, Mr. McCullough said he was speaking on behalf of the Downtown Seattle Association. Full disclosure, I do work for DSA. I've been moderating a series of panels for them since t uh, 2020 called Virtual Access. We do, I don't know, three, three, one or two series a year with three different, anyway. I, and I love Downtown Seattle Association. I love, I love what they do to keep this downtown vital and deal with all sorts of challenges and everything. They're, they're uh, good people working there and they do good stuff. So 
Just full disclosure on that. Okay. Now, so a big part of the meeting on Wednesday was a presentation by one of two consultants paid by the school district to write what many would call an anti-nomination. That's what we talked about that was issued back in June and was missing all these key elements. Now, remember, the goal of these consultants is for the stadium itself to not be designated a landmark. So the school district and the city can go ahead with their plan to demolish Memorial Stadium and with a private partner, build a brand new stadium in the same spot. Now, of the two consultants, Susan Boyle wasn't there on Wednesday but David Peterson was. I would like to just go through the landmark criteria. And I know the board has received um, some additional um, uh, opinions regarding criteria. And Susan and I, uh, Susan Boyle and I um, wanted to just one more time reiterate our our opinion here. Um, The main, um, one of the main things that we see is that the, is that the, the stadium really is made up of two distinct components. Um, the, the, the Memorial Wall of 1951 and then the stadium itself, the Memorial Stadium of 1947. Um, the, uh, regarding criteria A, it is associated in a significant way with the historic event, which has had a significant effect on the community, city, state, or nation. We would say that many well-attended events have occurred at the stadium over the past 76 years. It was adapted as a pre-existing facility and adapted for different uses during the six months of the 1962 World's Fair. It was not a purpose-built building for the World's Fair, but rather a part of public-owned property. This association does not appear to us to be sufficient to meet the double significance language of Criterion A. We don't think B applies, and I think that's clear. No single person um, was um, connected to it. Um, it was the construction operation use of the building has been by, multi- by groups of people. Uh, on Criterion C, it is associated in a significant way with a significant aspect of the cultural, political, or economic heritage of the community, city, state, or nation. The stadium was conceived of in the 1940s and purpose-built as a football stadium in 1947. It has served public school athletic programs for nearly eight decades and associated with the popularity of football as an activity in a spectator sport. Due to its size and location, it has also been a least venue for amateur and professional sports, religious and public speeches, spectacles, performances, and concerts, particularly among, particularly uh, during uh, the Bummer Shoot Labor Day Weekend Festival. The stadium has been a prep and assembly place for activities such as parades, political marches, and marathons that continue onto public streets, while the primary use is by Seattle Public Schools and has been, has seen hundreds of school events and ceremonies each year. The associations between the stadium as a venue and activities held in it appear to be general. It is questionable if it can meet the double significance language of Criterion C. The Memorial Wall, however, does meet Criterion C. It is strongly associated with World War II, its aftermath and impact on Seattle residents and the post-war heritage of the city, city, uh, state, and nation. Similarly, on Criterion D, it embodies the distinctive visible characteristics of an architectural style, period, or method of construction. Susan and I feel that the grandstands embody some aspects of functional modernism in the exposed concrete frames and roof structure, while the original field house is a more mod- modern style. Their construction is representative of the immediate post-war period. However, being representative is not sufficient. Distinction is a comparative term, and there are other more unique stadiums in the Seattle area. In contrast, the evocative modern style Memorial Wall is distinctive and meets Criterion D. And uh, Criterion E, uh, in our last presentation at the nomination, we were uh, we understood that the that this criterion uh, in the past had been interpreted that. If groups of people design something, then 
this would not apply because it's um, it's harder to trace that. Uh, so, um, so in our opinion, the stadium is the work of two noteworthy settled designers, George Stoddard, instructional engineer Peter Hosmart, and it was built by a well-known infrastructure contractor, Puget Sound Bridge and Dredging. In comparison with their other projects, however, it does not appear to be an outstanding work. The Memorial Wall was a collaborative effort uh, with a concept by Garfield High School student Marion Hansen with detailing production by the school, school district staff. However, uh, the wall designed by Hansen does appear to be an outstanding work and meets criterion E. And then criterion F, uh, visual prominence, uh, surprisingly, uh, because of its uh, on a large playing field and surrounded by buildings of similar scale and the Gates Foundation across the street, it, it's, uh, it really does not stand out. So we don't believe criterion F applies. Um, so, in, so to wrap that up, the, um, uh, we think the, this, the Memorial Wall meets criterion C, D, and E, but the stadium does not meet any of the criteria. So again, that's a fairly, uh, that's David Peterson. He's a consultant paid by Seattle Public Schools to write the nomination and hope that Memorial Stadium would not be designated a landmark. And so he laid out all his opinions there for why it didn't meet all those different criteria, but why the Memorial Wall did. Okay, speaking next was Jack McCullough's fellow attorney from McCullough Hillary. This is Jesse Clausen. This is the colleague that the staffer, who Aaron Doherty, who we heard at the beginning of Jack's remarks, this is who she was referring to when she spoke to, spoke to Mr. McCullough right before he made his public comment. Is this, and these remarks from Jesse Clausen came right after David Peterson. Thank you for the opportunity to share Seattle Public Schools' position on this designation. Uh, we rep represent Seattle Public Schools. Um, Seattle Public Schools supports the designation of the Memorial Wall and looks forward to working with the board and veterans groups in its rehabilitation. Seattle Public Schools does not support designation of Memorial Stadium, either in its entirety or as the open playfield area. Neither meet the required landmark criteria, as David just mentioned. First, Memorial Stadium in its entirety does not meet D, E, or F. It does not embody a particular style under D. Under E, it is not an outstanding work of George Stoddard and not even his best stadium work. In addition, the only interesting thing about Stoddard's design is the smooth underside of the roof with the beam system on the top. It turns out that this is actually a design flaw having a concrete system on top of a structure that captures bird poop, dirt, moss, and water turned into a maintenance nightmare. The district covered this feature many years ago to cure this design mistake, which has not been replicated anywhere else, uh, which has altered and, and hides the original design. Finally, the stadium is disconnected from Seattle Center and is barely visible from the rest of the campus. It is not neat. Criterion F. As for C, the stadium has been the location of many concerts, sports contests, meetings, and graduation ceremonies. All of these types of activities are a part of people's lives and memories in Seattle. However, the stadium is not associated significantly with these events. These types of events are not limited to only Memorial Stadium. They happen every day in other gathering places around the city. T-Mobile Park, Climate Pledge Arena, and Lumen Field all host graduations, celebrations, gatherings, concerts, and sports contests at the professional college and high school level. Indeed, all of these same types of activities happen in other places all over the city, in gyms, on fields, and in parks. They all host the same events as Memorial Stadium. 
These memories are made all over the city every day, not just at Memorial Stadium. Nothing about the structure of Memorial Stadium itself creates a specialness that would warrant designation under C. Regarding concerts, the stadium is not a significant cultural concert venue in the city. It is telling that not one music group or musician has spoken in favor of preserving this place, either today in oral public comment or in writing, despite it being used for many concerts over the years. This may be contrasted with the public support in favor of designating the show box. Several hundreds of Seattleites spoke in favor of landmark designations of the show box. This included world-famous Seattle bands like Death Cab for Cutie, Pearl Jam, and Macklemore, who all played at the show box and rallied in favor of its designation. Interestingly, these same bands also played at Memorial Stadium, but none of these bands spoke in favor of designation of Memorial Stadium as a landmark. The vast majority of public comments that you've received are against designation of the stadium. It should be instructive to the board regarding Memorial Stadium's cultural significance under Criterion C. We wanted to address staff's recommendations about the playfield area being designated. I sent a letter to you today, sorry it's late, uh, to more clearly outline our position on this. The playfield was last replaced in 2013 with a crumb rubber field. It is replaced approximately every 10 years. The field itself as an object or improvement is not more than 25 years old and cannot qualify for landmark designation. As outlined in our letter, the field does not fit the ordinance's definition of a site because it has been improved. In addition, the landmark ordinance does not permit the designation of an area, a volume of space, or a use. The landmark ordinance requires designation of something physical, not metaphysical, like use or happy memories. In order to designate the field area, the board would be designating a 10-year-old crumb rubber synthetic turf field. This would not be permitted under the ordinance. Also, as already stated in public comment, the only other designated landmark playfields, the Hiawatha Playfield and Bobby Morris Playfield at Cal Anderson Park, were designated and constructed as part of the Olmstead Brothers plans. They were designated under multiple landmark criteria for their close connection with the Olmstead Brothers and their design. This is very different from the field in this case, which was not part of the Olmstead design, was not part of a grander design at all, and is completely disconnected from the Seattle Center campus and the city that surrounds it. Finally, this is also in our letter, but while the landmark ordinance does not permit a use to be preserved as a city landmark, property covenants can require and preserve certain uses. The Memorial Stadium property is subject to a property deed restriction that requires that it be used in perpetuity as an athletic stadium. If it ceases to be used as an athletic stadium, the property ownership reverts back to the city of Seattle. I can assure you that the school district will honor this use restriction and has every intention of continuing to use this property as a new athletic stadium for generations of students in the future. Thanks for your consideration. This is Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM and streaming at space101fm.org. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're doing a deep dive on last week's meeting of the Seattle Landmarks Preservation Board and the whole anti-nomination phenomenon that seems to be just very prevalent in the whole Seattle Landmarks process. We last heard from Jesse Closet and McCullough Hill-Leary, uh, an attorney representing Seattle Public Schools in their effort to prevent Memorial Stadium from being designated as a city landmark. Uh, coming up at 9 p.m. is Jay's Radio Hour. He's got jazz from 1918, ragtime banjos, a phonograph scam, the roots of the Beatles, 
and it's just a burning memory like you've never heard it before. And that's what Jay's claiming anyhow. So stay tuned to see if he's telling the truth. That all starts at 9 p.m. right here on Space 101.1 FM. But we've got more to get to. You've got about 25 minutes. going to try to pack in a lot of audio here. Uh, I know this is, again, this is like Radio C-SPAN, and I apologize. But this is a, it's a really interesting story. I think there it, it needs to be more research into, into kind of making this more transparent, this whole notion of why we go through, spend all these public dollars on these processes that are foregone conclusions. It's really goofy. Um, this next part of the discussion was led by consultant David Peterson and was trying to get at what a living memorial is. Um, it was needlessly convoluted, in my, in my opinion, because here's my short version first. A living memorial is the opposite of a statue. Um, it's a, like a highway or a swimming pool or a stadium a big thing you actually use for a purpose that may or may not be directly related to what or who you're memorializing. But there was this movement in the mid-20th century, instead of putting up some just ornate statue of a soldier just to sit there and to look at it every now and then, build things people actually needed and honor the memory of those nearly 800 Seattle Public Schools alums by having a stadium that you can play football in and that people can gather in the stands. Essentially, honor their memory of those of those soldiers and sailors and airmen by doing what they were fighting for. I mean, they were fighting for our right to gather peacefully and to celebrate our communities. And when the stadium was dedicated in 1947, four years before the Wall of Names, their relatives probably sat in those grandstands, the ones that all the consultants we've heard tonight are saying are, are don't have enough uh, historic significance to designate as landmarks. Okay, I'm getting too I'm getting too wrapped up in this. Anyway, let's listen to this. is a very long cut, but it's just um, what I think is a very convoluted discussion of a very simple complex con concept. And I might not play the whole thing. Just watch, trying to watch the clock here and see a lot of stuff we have to get to. But um, this is David Peterson leading discussion with some of the Seattle Landmarks Preservation Board members about just what is a living memorial. Um, thank you, David, for a really great presentation, and I appreciate the all the follow up information that was provided. I did miss the um, nomination uh, meeting for, for this project. So I appreciate um, seeing everything again and then hearing it during this presentation. Um, I do have a question and I have further further thoughts. I'll, they'll be part of the discussion, but the question is, I'm wondering, David, and you might've gotten into this um, a little more detail the first time around, is what was the def and, and there was a commenter that that um, sent a letter I believe about about this. But what was the definition of a living memorial at the time when they were building this, and has that kind of interpretation or definition changed to to what we think of it now? I know that the commenter had. I kind of discussed it being like a something that was really poignant at the time and kind of been forgotten about now. I'm wondering if you could offer um, what the def definition was then. Sure, like a quick recap. Um, the the so the living memorial movement um, actually began after World War One, and the, the the general idea was um, to uh, is is there a way? So after the after the horrors of World War One, where you know there was the the, war, the, the Great War, the War Endo Wars, what they call it, uh, is there some way where we can move forward and remember the war dead, but in a way that's more positive, instead of just being a statue in a park or something like that? And um, and so uh, there are examples 
all over the region of these kinds of things. So there's, um, and, and, and then after World War II, uh, the Living Memorial Movement also um, came up then as well. So, so things that we have in the community, the entrance to the University of Washington uh, off of 17th Avenue, there's a line of London plane trees which were planted as Memorial Way. And De Des Moines Memorial Drive in uh, Des Moines and Buren in that area. Just going to pause that for a second because um, the first example that Mr. Peterson gives, a line of trees, that's not a living memorial. That's just a memorial. The second example, Des Moines Memorial Way, a roadway, that's a living memorial. So you can use a road. Trees are just like a statue. You gaze on them and, and, and look at them and think about the person you're memorializing. Des Moines Memorial Way, you use that. That's, that's, like a, that's why the stadium is a living memorial and the wall of names is not a living memorial. Okay, back to David Peterson. It's planted with uh, trees and um, uh, and carefully graded in a certain kind of way. And then there's memorials, physical memorials along the way. There were also uh, desires throughout the country to have things like uh, mu museums or, or uh, sports facilities. That was a really popular one. Felix Bunnell um, mailed to the board uh, a pamphlet that was sent around um, suggesting all the different kinds of uses you could use. That was actually one of the sources that we used in our nomination report. Um, but um, baseball stadiums and anyway, places, pool, swimming pools, uh, things like that. So the idea was that that you, um, especially for something like a football stadium, was, you know, we can have uh, – build young men's bodies and, and, and spirit and, and attitudes through, uh, you know, nonviolent conflict. Uh, so kind of a warlike kind of thing, but instead it has a, a more beneficial outcome. Um, in, in the, the, the movement kind of came and went, um, and it still is with us, but the, the, the more philosophical component of that is, the advantage of an old-fashioned monument where you just go to acknowledge it, it's, a, it's an opportunity, it's a specific opportunity in place to express uh, memory, that, that it gives you a chance to, to remember things. And so even long into the future, you will remember what it was for. And the, because it says what it is. Whereas um, living memorials... Um, for for example, there was a, a tree that was just cut down on the on the Capitol campus in Olympia, uh, that was a memory of Cal Anderson, and and the the governor and, and some other legislatures were outraged that someone had accidentally cut it down without knowing the significance of it. Again, that's not a living memorial. That's a tree that's planted in memorial to Cal Anderson, and it's terrible that it was cut down. But it's not like a stadium or a swimming pool or a highway that you use in honor of the persons or the people who you're commemorating. That's the, the, the convoluted discussion here did such a disservice to the board members trying to understand what a living memorial truly is. Let's, let's go a little bit more with this audio here. This is uh, consultant Dave Peterson at the, um, David Peterson, addressing the Seattle Landmarks Preservation Board, in, actually in conversation with them a few days ago at their meeting about Memorial Stadium here on Space 101.1 FM. And that's the danger of kind of a living memorial is that it, 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 it has to be, um, it, its active use is what causes it to be uh, remembrance and uh, and that kind of thing. Um, the in the conversation regarding this particular property, uh, the the um, 
the school district, the, the Memorial Stadium was already going to be called Mem High School Memorial Stadium um, in the late 1940s when it was being designed. But then the, the discussion that you missed out on from the nomination presentation was that the, in, throughout the city, they were, trying, um, they were trying to decide where to put a, a monument to everybody that died, but the adults and, and everybody, not just the high school students. Hey, we'll, we'll stop that audio there. Basic premise is, it's how I explained it very simply at the start of, of before I played that cut. A living memorial is a thing that you use, like a stadium or a, or a, a swimming pool or a highway. It's not a statue or a tree or a line of trees or something that's just something to look at or be appreciated visually. It's a thing and you actively use, which the country needed more of that stuff after World War II because there was all these GIs coming back. The baby boom was on the horizon. Um, you know, after the Great Depression, there was still need for great public facilities. And why not build a stadium in Seattle in 1947? Invite all the families of those students who passed away, those alums from Seattle Public Schools, to gather in those stands and the grandstands in 1947 and kick off what's now 76 years of that stadium having a very significant role in this community as a community gathering place. Okay, that was just the way these meetings work, too. I'm sitting at home listening to this on the, um, on the computer, you know, on their, on their online thing. And I don't know if, if I'd been there in person, I don't think it would, would have been any different. I couldn't have gotten up and, you know, like <laughs> started waving my hands. Um, now, I, one thing I looked into, I asked Seattle Public Schools and One Roof Partnership and the city of Seattle and council member Andrew Lewis, if they ever looked into what it would cost to give Memorial Stadium what I call the Climate Pledge Arena treatment, to take a vintage facility and give it a major renovation while keeping a good portion of the original historic structure. You know, it, it's an old stadium. I get that. It needs to be reimagined. But I never got an answer to that question from any of the people I asked. Um, well, I, did get, I did get an answer. I'll tell you about that in a second. One of the board members asked something similar this past Wednesday. Um, and this is Jesse Clausen from McCullough Hill Leary responding. Hey, I got a question, David. Uh, what evidence or studies do we have that supports the position that the stadium cannot be retrofitted? I don't know of that. That would be a question uh, for someone else, I think, because I'm just looking at the history of the of the property. In the, in the nomination report that we did. I can, I can answer that straight. Um, the stadium, there's been plenty of studies looking at lots of different options for the stadium. Um, I think the the difficulty with renovating the stadium to make it seismically correct and ADA accessible is that uh, I, I actually don't know if it could be made ADA accessible. I don't know that. From a seismic perspective, the beams that would have to be added uh, would pretty seriously change the structure and I don't know, kind of, you know, what it looks like today. There'd have to be big shear walls on the outsides and probably some beams on the insides. So, I mean, anything is probably structurally possible. You know, an engineer would tell you that it's at what cost and how does it really change um, the rest of the stadium? And, and I don't know the answer with ADA. I think there'd have to be some very significant ramping um, that would be difficult to do. So they don't know the answer. They didn't check okay. into it, actually. thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's the board member. Oops, sorry. Cut off the board member there thing. Thank you. Very polite board members there on the Landmarks Preservation Board. So I looked into this earlier this year. I guess it was in August. On August 24th, I sent an email to Seattle Public Schools Media Relations, and I asked them this. I said, is there an SBS person, Seattle Public Schools, who can speak to me about the possibilities of, of a of a uh, Climate Pledge Arena-style redo 
or a person from one of the partners signed on to the project. And I said, I'm mainly curious to know whether or not such options, what some have called the climate pledge arena treatment, have been explored to any degree so far. It took a few days, but here's the crux of the school district's reply. Um, they said, we're not providing an interview before the Landmarks Preservation Board decision since the board needs the space to do its work. Um, we believe that data and information shared clearly shows that the stadium structure is nearing the end of its useful life, as reported in a 2021 outside engineering study, which gave the stadium a poor rating, and noting that the cost of renovation was two-thirds higher than a new design. As such, a renovation was not pursued, and we remain committed to the rebuilding of Memorial Stadium. Because I had asked them, I think, what were they, because well, some school a school spokesperson had given me a statement saying the stadium had reached the end of its useful life, and I asked what the proof was for that. Um, so they mentioned this 2021 outside engineering study. So I said, my next email back seconds later was, oh, hey, can I have a copy of that 2021 engineering study? And they wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> they, they cite the study as a reason for them saying it's the end of its useful life, but then they won't give me the study. So I submitted a Freedom of Information Act request, and it has yet to be provided to me. I mean, that was August 24th or 25th, probably, I submitted the request. And it's, what, October 8th? Um, so once I get a chance to see that 2021 study that they used to back up their claims that it wasn't worth looking into as a renovation rather than a complete demolition, I'll let you know what I find. Um, I just love that. To be clear, they quote a study to claim the stadium has reached the end of its useful life, then they don't actually and won't actually provide a copy of the study. I'm not even sure what to call that kind of behavior. Um, all right, so the board members asked some other questions as they, as they discussed how they would vote. They spent a lot of time talking about designating the field as a landmark, but not the stadium. That was kind of a dead end. It was sort of weird. that They were trying to like landmark the usage of it. Jesse Clausen got at that a little bit in her earlier remarks. But they were all in favor of landmarking the 1951 Wall of Names, but not landmarking the 1947 stadium because of all the stuff you heard from consultants about it not being significant. But the remarks of Jack McCullough had an effect on at least one board member. Before I play audio from that board member, and whose name I didn't catch, and it's just the audio of a video meeting, I can't figure out who it is, um, I want to remind you what we heard from Mr. McCullough earlier in the meeting. This is what he said as part of his remarks. Hey, I got a question, David. Oh, wait, wrong one. This is what he said as part of his remarks. So your obligation tonight goes beyond this criteria, beyond age, beyond integrity. I don't think you can reach this finding because the designation of Memorial Stadium will obstruct and impair the implementation of the Century 21 Master Plan. We encourage you to deny the designation. So again, he's saying ignore all the criteria that you're supposed to look at as Landmarks board members and just think about the city's master plan because that overrides everything. And this is what this board member said in her remarks. I can jump in now. Um, so for me, I think that the conflict for this building is that the site is a stadium and that the building type has a very specialized set of requirements to make it function as a stadium. Um, and that for basically any other type of building, if with its history, with everything that happened at this location, we wouldn't even be questioning whether the building has significance, whether or not it should be a landmark. But because it's a stadium and because it's not something that's easily adaptable. You can't just, you know, put a different use in it and make it function as you could for, say, an office building that could then be used in some other manner. Um, I think that's where a lot of the difficulty with making this a landmark is coming from. And I'm 
actually fairly concerned with the interpretations of the criteria that have been presented by both presenters and commentators uh, to avoid designation of this structure. I think that they are extremely strict and problematic and that moving forward, if we accepted these types of interpretations, it would set a poor precedent uh, for how we landmark future buildings. Um, so I, I think that from, from the history uh, that's been presented, that there is a significant cultural heritage that is presented for this site and that it is definitely been impacted by this structure significantly. Uh, from what the commentators have said, a lot of that impact has been extremely negative especially more recently. So, but it is definitely significantly impacting how people have been and, and, and experienced these events and these, this place. So I think that it meets that double significant standard. Um, however, I see this, this stadium as extremely unique one-off situation where the designation is actually against the purpose of the landmark designation ordinance. Um, I believe Jack McCullough mentioned it as well, that in the section 2512020, um, that what we're looking at in the landmark is, you know, that it's good for civic pride, community, future of the city. And I don't see us landmarking this stadium as moving that forward. Um, so I guess in summary, for the wall, I 100% support based on all the designation criteria that have previously been stated. Um, I do think that significant history has happened at this site, but I don't support designation because I don't see how this building will move into the future um, as a landmark and be positive for the city. So I guess my hope is that once it, you know, once this is done, that hopefully the folks that you have a negative view of the stadium in terms of um, how they've experienced it in the past will maybe take a more, more caring view of the, the history of both this site as a community gathering space um, and maybe there's a way to keep tabs on the history and, and present the history of this building going forward, or at least the history of the site going forward um, into whatever next incarnation the Living Memorial takes. So I guess I'll repeat my question here again. Should the staff had said something um, about the way these board members were interpreting the ordinance? Because it sounds like that board member was saying like, okay, this landmark, if this is a landmark, it's not good for the city. It gets in, it's sort of standing in the way. Um, it's it's crazy uh, because it's, again, in public comment, I don't know if a, the staff could have said something. Remember, here's, uh, here's what that board member said again. Um, I believe Jack McCullough mentioned it as well, that in the section 2512-020, um, that what we're looking at in the landmark is, you know, 
that it's good for civic pride, community, future of the city. And I don't see us landmarking this stadium as moving that forward. And remember, this is the reference. This is what she heard Jack McCullough say earlier. So your obligation tonight goes beyond the six criteria, beyond age, beyond integrity. I don't think you can reach this finding because the designation of Memorial Stadium will obstruct and impair the implementation of the Century 21 Master Plan. We encourage you to deny the designation. So the Landmarks Board did vote to designate the Wall of Names, but not the stadium. I wonder what the whole process would have looked like if they'd never built the Wall of Names in the first place, if all they had to look at was a 1947 stadium. How would they have justified getting rid of it or not being a landmark then? Um, since Thursday, I've been reaching out to Landmark staff, to the Mayor's office, to Councilmember Tammy Morales' office, since she oversees the committee that includes Landmarks, to ask them if what Mr. McCullough told the board members and what at least one board member sort of paraphrased back during the meeting was true, that the city's master plan for Seattle Center overrides anything related to the criteria used to designate landmarks. Uh, nothing from the mayor's office, nothing from Tammy Morales' office. Only response was a cryptic email from landmark staff that said, uh, thank you for your inquiry. The board's decision on designation does not prevent future alterations to the property, and therefore the board's question is not inconsistent with other city goals. And that didn't answer my question. Maybe it was sent to the wrong person. I even reached out to former mayor Greg Nichols, who was mayor when that Century 21 plan was adopted. We traded Facebook messages, but he didn't respond to my, my bigger question about that Century 21 plan. Well, we're just about out of time. Jay's Radio Hour comes on in a couple minutes. This is, we're going to not able to play the, this installment of the Chief Seattle biography. I'm very sorry for that. We'll play a double installment next time, I promise. Um, one more little preservation note, the Valerie Savinsky Fund, which is a grant program from the Washington State or the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation. That deadline for that is tomorrow. It's a pretty simple application, as I recall. I was one of the board members for the Washington Trust back in the 1990s when we developed that program. And I'm very proud that it's still going 25 years later. Very few things I've been involved with 25 years ago are still going strong. So um, thanks for listening to Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. Please join us next Sunday night and every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Pacific time. You can tune in at Space 101.1 FM in the city or stream it live at Space101FM.org, any other place you want all around the world. Um, you can reach out through our website. You can get our podcast pretty much anywhere you get podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, uh, all those sorts of places like that. Um, we will be back on the air a week from now. Um, Jay's Radio Hour is coming up next on Space 101.1 FM. Tune in the station anytime you want. Um, just There's always good stuff going on. There's great shows put together by local people. And, uh, you know, it's a, really, it's a really fascinating little community radio station that does a lot of great stuff. Um, this preservation thing is very convoluted. I don't think it's over yet. I mean, I think the... Uh, Memorial Stadium is probably doomed. It's sort of standing in the way of progress. <clears throat> There's a lot of uh, powerful interests that don't really appreciate that whole living memorial part. I do think this notion of the way the city of Seattle has this process where the school district pays consultants and attorneys to come and have city paid staff review these applications that are essentially a foregone conclusion. Why are we spending all that public money when we could just say, okay, the, we've decided the stadium is not worth even considering as a landmark. Let's, let's, just, let's not go through the motions. Let's just make the decision and be really honest and transparent about it. I think I'd feel better that way. Going through this process, observing it as closely as I have, I feel sort of sullied by it. <laughs> I really want to take a shower. It has just kind of a, it does such a disservice to people who take history seriously, who take our heritage and our built environment seriously, and who work hard to save, especially public buildings. Private buildings, you know, if a private building owner wants to tear it down, I, that's hard to say no to, but these public buildings belong to all of us, and we should all have a say in them, and it shouldn't be some foregone conclusion that's presented to the Landmarks uh, Preservation Board here in Seattle. Well, until next week, I'm Felix Bunnell for Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM.
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it. Watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.